If, it's, if this is your first time here, if you haven't heard any of the Micah series so far, don't worry, because this is a really good one to come in on. Um, you might know that Micah is basically three cir- circles, three concentric cycles, okay? And um, the first two chapters are the first cycles. So you missed that, but don't worry. You're right at the beginning of the next cycle, and all the cycles are very similar. They begin with a call to listen, listen, listen. They all start the same, and they all end the same. They end with the promise of a king. And so we're at the very beginning of the second cycle. So even if this is your first time, hopefully you should get a, a good amount out of this. Well, with that passage open, let's uh, bow our heads and pray. In the dark of night before the dawn, my soul be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh how long, may God of Jacob be my strength. Father, thank you that even though we have... Um, I guess quite a dark passage ahead of us. We have hope. We know there is a king at the end of it. And we pray, Lord, that tonight, however dark our weeks have been, however dark our world might seem, that our hope would be in our king. Lift our eyes to him, we pray. Amen. A train was just setting out from London King's Cross, and a tick inspector began to do his business, as he does. He goes from carriage to carriage, checking stubs. He was in the very first carriage when he, when he took a ticket off a guy and uh, looked at it and said, uh, I, I'm sorry, sir, but um, you're on the wrong train. This ticket's for, for another train. And this did not go down so well. I mean, imagine it was you having been told that. Uh, the, the train has already set off. And this guy went ballistic. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm definitely on the right train. I'm definitely on the right train. Uh, the, the man at the desk pointed to this train and said, get on that train. And so I'm on the right train. I'm on the right train. The ticket inspector said, no, I'm sorry, sir. Um, you're not on the right train. This guy starts kicking off even more. And being British, everyone else in the, in the passengers just kept their head down reading, pretending they don't know what's going on. It seems sort of escalating. Eventually, a colleague came along to help him out. And when he looked at the ticket, they discovered that, in fact, it was the inspector who was on the wrong train. <laughs> if a leader is lost, what hope do the rest of us have of knowing if we're on the right track? We see this in business, don't we? Poor management can quickly tank a successful company. We see this in politics. Inept leadership can kill off poll ratings quicker than anything. And we see this in churches. Some of the strongest warnings in the entire Bible are aimed at ministers. Because God knows we have the capacity either for great good or great damage. And this really is the issue facing us today. God had given his people Israel three offices of leadership. You might know this. Each of whom were anointed with oil. He gave them kings to administer justice. He gave them prophets to reveal God's word. He gave them priests to atone for their sins in the temple. Prophets, priests, kings. But Micah chapter 3 is a complete train wreck. It's a horror show. Because here we see what happens when the leaders of God's people go off the rails. We're going to see both the destruction that they reap on those whom they're supposed to be serving. And we're also going to see the judgment that they deserve. Micah is addressing the leaders in this passage. And so you'll forgive me if, if this evening I'm primarily preaching to myself. But also, those of us in, any of us in, in leadership positions, and maybe you're a small group leader, maybe, maybe you teach uh, children on Sunday mornings. Primarily, we're going to be thinking about leaders, but, 
But notice that Micah is warning Israel's leaders in the hearing of all the people. So the whole church are given passages like this one so that you might know how to call your leaders to account. So that you might know the potential pitfalls we can all too easily fall into. So that you might know what sort of leaders to follow and what sort of leaders to reject. Well, first up, you'll see on your sheets, Micah introduces us to cannibalistic kings. If you were here last week, you'll remember how uh, greedy land barons, they're going around and and they're they're turfing orphans and widows off their land, off their God-given inheritance. And they're forcing them into slavery and prostitution. These land barons are doing awful things. And let's let's see them. What are the kings, what are the magistrates going to do about this? Look down with me, chapter 3, verse 1. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. It's brutal. Israel's kings and appointed magistrates, they were supposed to be agents of justice. But instead they've become agents of injustice. The rulers and magistrates were doing nothing against these land barons. In fact, it seems as if they're siding with them against the poor. Perhaps they were bribed to look the other way. Maybe they got a little piece of the action, a little bit of land on the side. But their concern is clear, isn't it? Their concern isn't so much the good of the people, so much as the goods from the people. How starkly they sit in contrast to that king we met at the end of last week. That shepherd king we met at the end of chapter 2. The one who's going to gather and protect his sheep from all threats. These false shepherds are the threat. Like Hannibal Lecter. They slowly and methodically, piece by piece, they're eating their own people, savouring every bite. And friends, we shouldn't be surprised to see the same thing happening in Christian churches even today. We read just now in Titus how certain pastors are going around ruining whole churches, being motivated by dishonest gain. They claim to be serving the church, but in fact they're serving themselves. Sometimes I found this this motivation is financial, it's financial. So I was chatting with someone off the church last week, they just moved to us from from somewhere else. And he he commented that the church he'd just come from was run very much like a business. He said it's like a a business, it's like a money-making machine. And in such places, it's very common for the pastors there to be paid like CEOs of major corporations. They're even given bonuses if they manage to increase growth and increase size each year. And they're incredibly wealthy. Well, you might think, well, surely we we need to offer high salaries in order to get the best candidates for the job. But, But actually, the exact opposite is the case. The word minister means servant, not CEO. In the Church of England, a minister's stipend is, is roughly equivalent to a teacher's salary. We don't need much. We're generously provided 
uh, with accommodation, so you don't need any more. Often they're motivated financially. But sometimes, and actually more often, what they're motivated by is power. I'm sure we all know of churches elsewhere where the minister is clearly in the business of making a name for himself. They're confusing the local church with their, their own little kingdom. They're, their congregations have become personality cults. They are a law unto themselves. Minimal systems of accountability are set in place. And whenever people disagree with them, they're condemned as disloyal and cast away. We might know churches like that. Well, the word pastor refers to our role as shepherds, under-shepherds. But if a shepherd is too busy feeding his own ego and his vanity projects, then it will be the sheep who suffer and starve. Please, before you settle into a church, before you subscribe to a podcast, do a little bit of research. Dig around. And don't be shocked to discover that certain ministers are in it for themselves. Well, in verse 4, we see God's response to these cannibalistic leaders. Look at verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. Here is poetic justice. Just as these cannibalistic kings didn't listen when the poor were crying out to them, those orphans and widows, help us, didn't listen. Well, so neither God will listen to them when they, when they cry out to him. On the day of judgment, they will face God's cold shoulder. Jesus will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. In view of God's judgment, the most loving thing you can do for those in church leadership, beyond praying for us, beyond um, encouraging us, the most loving thing you can do is hold us to account. Yes, the Bible says we've got to honour our leaders, we've got to respect our leaders, but this does not mean we're never to question them or, or never to challenge them. Disagreement does not mean disloyalty. Because it's better that we're held to account now than held to account on the day when we meet God. Watch out for cannibalistic kings. But next up, Micah introduces us to paid off prophets. You might know that throughout the Bible, prophets were kind of like the moral watchdogs of God's people. So when kings stepped out of line, the prophets were always there to hold them to account. So think of what happened when King David, with the whole Bathsheba incident, what happened? The prophet Nathan went to him and hauled him up. Uh, what happened when King Ahab turned to idols? What happened? Elijah, prophet Elijah, went and hauled him up. Well, in verse 5, let, let's see what the prophets are doing, responding to the failure of the kings and magistrates. Let's see, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not... They prepare to wage war against him. Oh dear. Seems as if these watchdogs, instead of barking at the corruption of the kings and magistrates, instead of barking, they're simply wagging their tails. As long as the cannibals throw them the odd bone, they're happy to bless and every single activity which comes their way, no matter how horrendous. They're a bit like those sleazy fortune tellers you sometimes see at fairgrounds you know the ones in those tents uh, rub my palm with silver peace and prosperity they'll be yours 
Try and give them copper. And they'll say, ooh, doom and gloom is coming your way. Ooh, something bad will happen. These prophets have utterly sold out. They're no longer watchdogs. No, they're, they're serpents. In fact, the, the Hebrew word describing, describing how they feed, it's, it's the same word for snake bite. They're serpents. See, it's all too easy for pastors to be led by their congregations rather than by the word of God. Telling them whatever their itching ears want to hear because after all, you pay my salary. (laughs) It's ironic that by letting the congregations take the lead, they're described here as responsible for leading God's people astray. About 10 years ago, I was part of a startup church in the Northeast, and at the time we were very, very small. I think we were only about 50 or 60 adults meeting in a school hall, pretty fragile at that time. And fairly early on, uh, one Sunday, a well known local celebrity uh, came and joined us. He's a well known millionaire, very wealthy man. And in conversation with people over coffee afterwards, he's saying, yeah, I'm really hoping to make this my church and I'm really hoping to settle down here and get involved. And you know, people were sort of really excited about this. You know, people were like, oh, this is great. It's great having this guy here. Well, that week, our minister took him out for lunch and um, this millionaire was explaining how he can help us get our own building. He can, he can sort out a, a PA system for us, how he's going to, you know, he can give us lots of new staff. Again, really exciting stuff. My minister, he, he expressed his gratitude Um, But he very wisely said this to him. I want to relieve you of the burden of thinking that that I'm going to treat you differently because of your wealth. Don't worry. I'm going to relate to you in exactly the same way as I relate to everyone else. We never saw him again. It's very easy for church ministers to be swayed by their congregations. And to show favoritism to certain individuals, especially if said individuals are powerful or wealthy. For that reason here, it's our policy that the ministry team have absolutely nothing to do with the financial side of the church. You might have noticed we don't have a collection plate going around. I never touch any bonds cash here in the church. We do things through standing orders if you want to give. I don't know who gives what, and to be honest, I don't really want to know. Because if I did know, it would be all too easy for me to go from being a watchdog to being a snake. And in verse 6, God tells us what happens to such people. Verse 6. Therefore night will come over you without visions, and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets, and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces, because there is no answer from God. The judgment for these paid-off prophets comes not with blazing fire or a foreign invasion, but with a quiet whimper. Micah may be referring here to the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, where instead of revelation from God, it was just nothing. Instead of basking in the light of his word, they sat in spiritual darkness. During that time, these false prophets were revealed for what they are. There they were. They were saying, peace, peace, peace. God thinks we're great. But here they are, sitting in shame, covering their faces like lepers. They will be revealed as charlatans. Does God withhold his word today? We might ask, does, uh, I mean, he can't really sort of snatch the Bible out of our hands, can he? We can't really imagine that happening. No, I don't think he'll do that. 
but there will always be a pressure for us not to teach the Bible. Especially when there's little hunger for it from those we're supposed to be teaching. So this is a warning for those of us who are leaders in, in any respect, whether of churches or, or small groups or families. If we give up teaching his word because people would just prefer something else, then even what we do have will be taken away from us. We need to stick with God's word. Let's not be paid off prophets. Well, thirdly, Micah introduces us to presumptuous priests. Presumptuous priests who, along with the cannibalistic kings and paid off prophets, are called out here in verse 9. Follow with me. Verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Here in this third oracle, you might have noticed the same old themes appear. Injustice, bribery. They're, they're returning around once again. But the new thing that we learn here about Israel's leaders is just how self-deluded they are. Despite their blatant corruption and their perversion of office, they're still absolutely certain that God is on their side. I mean, how could he not be? They might say to themselves. How could he not be on our side? There he is. He lives with us here in Jerusalem. There's his house just up the hill in the temple. Don't you remember, just a few years ago, the Assyrians came crashing through Israel, crashing through Judah, but they didn't take us, did they? Nope, Jerusalem's still standing firm because the Lord is among us. It's a dangerous thing to confuse God's patience with his favour. Verse 11 describes them leaning upon the Lord. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Leaning upon the Lord. But there's a world of difference between dependent faith and cocksure presumption. God's grace is not a license to sin. History and heritage are not substitutes for obedience. Here they were. They were treating the temple like a lucky charm, like a, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. The building had become more important to them than the actual one living in it. Ironically, it had become like um, a high place, one of the idolatrous places we read about in chapter 1. So it's absolutely right that in verse 12, God removes it from them. Look at verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Syria might have failed to take Jerusalem. But God warns that where Assyria failed, another superpower would come along and succeed. All their cultured city would become an uncultured field. Their oppressive skyline, a heap of ruins. The holy mountain, a wild wood. Passages like this should make us ask the question, what are we leaning on? What are we leaning on? I think established churches like ours, we, we can all too easily slip into 
presumptuous self-security. And it's scary. If you just go back 30 years, go back 30 years in time and look at what the flagship evangelical churches in the UK are. You could probably think of some of them if you've been around for a while. And now think where some of them are now. It's terrifying to see how few of them are still standing and are still preaching the gospel. One generation has the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. And the third generation loses the gospel. St. John's, we must not be presumptuous. But what are we leaning on as individuals? I mean, wow. Friends, on the last day, we, when we stand before God in judgment, know this. Your church attendance will not save you. Your position of leadership will not save you. Your theological knowledge and your church pedigree will not save you. May the Lord forgive us for our idolatrous presumption, our half-hearted, half-baked, prayerless, loveless, presumptuous, Christless Christianity. We cannot save ourselves. Well, who then can save? Well, let's close. Let's look at the anointed one, our final point. Let's meet him. It seems as if in the midst of the cannibalistic kings, the paid-off prophets, and the presumptuous priests, there is one faithful voice left in the city of Jerusalem. And look back with me at verse 8, if you would. Verse 8. Here's Micah speaking. But as for me, I am filled with power and with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. You might have heard of the philosopher Blaise Pascal, and he once said this, quite a famous quote. Power without justice is tyranny. Justice without power is ineffective. Justice and power must therefore come together so that what is just is also powerful and what is powerful is also just. Looking at Micah, he is not an innately powerful person. He was not a city boy. He was not raised among the elite of Jerusalem. No, we learn in chapter 1 that he's from a town called Morasheth, a little place down the road. And yet this weak, unimpressive, very much alone country boy was anointed with the Holy Spirit. In him, both power and justice came together, and through him, the Lord did the most remarkable thing. So as we close, I've got three bullet point applications for us. The first one is this. We need to keep hearing hard messages. Keep hearing hard messages. As you've no doubt discovered over the past couple of weeks, Micah's ministry was kind of negative in nature. He's described here as declaring Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. That, that repeated refrain throughout uh, the book, listen, listen, listen. We're given that because, because by nature we don't want to listen to this, do we? We don't want to hear about our sin and, and, and God's judgment. But I want to show you what happens if we do listen. If you'd be so kind, turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 26. It's page 786 in your Bibles. Page 786. It's a very unusual thing in Micah 3 because we know exactly the impact it had on those leaders he was preaching to. It makes it a very unusual passage. 
Look at Jeremiah chapter 26, page 786. Jeremiah was speaking about 100 years after Micah. And Jeremiah was also getting in a bit of trouble for prophesying the destruction of the temple. So look down with me, verse 17. Let me read this, chapter 26, verse 17. Micah's getting, uh, Jeremiah's getting in trouble for, for preaching against the temple. Verse 17. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favour? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring against against them the disaster he pronounced? We're about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves if we execute Jeremiah. Remarkable, isn't it? King Hezekiah probably didn't like being called a cannibal. I, I, I can't, I, I'm, not, I'm guessing here, I can't imagine that getting the reports, King Hezekiah, oh, there's a prophet downtown called Micah, he's calling you a cannibal, by the way. I don't think, I don't think Hezekiah went, yeah, no, that would have hurt. But Hezekiah listened, and he repented, and so God relented of the disaster that he promised here. I don't expect to be a popular person by preaching about sin and judgment. But even if a sermon is painful or difficult, the question is, will you keep listening? Because the more aware of our sin we become, the more wonderful the salvation is. The more wonderful God's grace appears. We need to keep hearing hard messages. But our second application is this. Expect human leaders to disappoint us. Expect human leaders to disappoint us. A friend of mine just um, begun a new job. Uh, he's a, a senior minister just down the road from here. And um, he was um, praying with his son the week before uh, he was uh, put into post. And he was expressing to his son, um, honestly, some of his anxieties about stepping into this new leadership role. And, and so they knelt by their bed and, and they prayed. And this is how his son prayed. Lord, I pray that daddy wouldn't be too much of a disappointment Well, that's the point, isn't it? That's the point. We're always going to be disappointments. Bill Hybels says, leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can understand. (laughs) Having spent a week studying this passage, I'm all the more aware of my failings and shortcomings as a leader. And if I'm disappointed in myself... I've got to expect that you're going to at some points be pretty disappointed with me. So isn't it good news that I'm not your saviour? Isn't it good news that I'm not your prophet? I'm not your priest. I'm not your king. Yes, that the bar of expectation for pastors is held high. We, we must be models of progress, not perfection, progress. But I'm not your saviour. And if you hold me on that sort of ridiculous pedestal... It can't be healthy for either me or you. Human leaders will disappoint us. And so to our final application, we must go to the anointed one. Go to the anointed one. You see, Jesus. Jesus is the prophet 
the priest and the king that we need. We began our, our service earlier with that, that reading in, in Acts chapter 10. Remember how prophet, priests and kings, they were anointed with oil, right? Well, we read there in Acts 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. I read recently of a man who's uh, recently became a grandfather. His, uh, his granddaughter had just been born. She was called Zoe. But she was born four months premature um, as a result of uh, giving birth. I think his, his daughter was very ill, so she wasn't around to, to, to be with the child. And poor Zoe was just strapped to these machines in intensive care or whatever it was, helping her to breathe and such. The doctor said the baby had around a 5 to 10% chance of living because she was just, just so tiny. But the nurse pulled the grandfather aside and said to him, look, the mum's not here, so here's what you need to do. You're going to have to come in every single day. And what I want you to do, I want, to rub, I want you to rub Zoe's body, and I want you to rub her legs with just the tip of your finger, very gently like that. And as you're massaging her, I want you, I want you to tell her how much you love her. And the nurse told him he needs to do this because the baby needs to be able to connect his voice with, with his touch. The baby lived. Human leaders will always disappoint us. No matter how learned or, or experienced we might be, there'll always be some level of disconnect between our voice and our touch. But not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. He possesses both power and justice in perfect measure. As we go to him, we're not only comforted by his voice, we, are, we feel his touch, we feel his warm embrace. Like Micah, yes, he was a very unimpressive man to look at. Yes, he was from a, a tiny, insignificant village. And yet he fought for justice. He, he stood up against the corrupt leaders of his day. But more than that, he fought for us. He fought for our salvation. The salvation that we so badly needed and could not win for ourselves. The temple of his body was broken in order that we might permanently be in God's presence and enjoy security with him. Friends, go to Jesus. Lean on him. Because he is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. Let's pray. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Thank you, Father, for giving us such a leader as this. Thank you, Father, that he is the leader we need and certainly not the leader we deserve. Father, looking to him, would all of us have great security knowing that we are intimately loved by you having heard his voice and having felt his touch. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.